Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast, number 70. I'm Steve Smith. I'm with Brandon Flanagan. We're coming to you from Boynton Beach. We're based out of the FM Tennis Performance Center. And tonight we're going to interview Ed Crass. It's going to be great. Ed Crass. I'm going to say a few things. A lot of personality, a lot of energy, uh, great resume, incredible experiences he's going to share with us. Uh, most recently been uh, has had a huge impact with one-on-one doubles, but he's uh, he's been the head women's coach at Harvard University, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, uh, assistant coach at Clemson under Chuck Creasy for the men's team, uh, captained uh, the Charlotte Heat World Team Tennis, which is a pretty cool experience, also head coach of the UCF men's team. Uh, but, you know, he's also uh, told us he's had experience with Rick Macy, Harry Hopman, some really special coaches to work under. So, uh, it'd be great to talk to him about all of his experiences and and uh, yeah yeah I really want to plug one on one doubles, uh, which is fantastic. With with Ed, he's done so much with college placement. I don't know if there's anyone on the on the on the planet who knows as many college coaches as Ed Crass. But without any further ado, we'll see if I can use my phone. It's always a mystery, a real mystery. <laughs> all right, I get teased for my phone skills. Lack of Eddie Crass from Tampa, based in Tampa. Hi, Steve. Ed. Hey, Ed, how you doing? Steve and Brandon. All right, here. Brandon. Hey. Great to have Hi. you on. We just told our listeners that we're going to talk about number one, the Tampa Bay Lightning, number two, the Tampa Bay Lightning, and number three, the Tampa Bay Lightning. No, no, I'm <laughs> the just, world just, champ. It's quickly changed the world to champ. an NHL podcast. NHL podcast, but I know you're a big fan. We talk about the Lightning all the time, but... Let's talk about your journey in tennis, how you got started. There's so much to cover with what you've done in tennis. Yeah, no, I was a junior in Westchester County, and then I played a little bit in, in the Tampa Bay area as a junior. And, and then I played, um, you know, all the, I played a lot of East, East Coast tournaments uh, in the ETA, USTA Eastern Circuit. Uh, and then I got a scholarship to play college tennis at University of Central Florida, and that was a, a, a blessing. And then, uh, you know, I had four years there and then was asked to be the head coach of the UCF men's team my fifth year. And uh, because they really didn't have, you know, the funding to get a a real experienced coach, I was lucky to to get that job. And at the age of 23, I was the head coach of of a Division II team back then. And we played all the Division I teams that came into town, you know, like Ohio State and Michigan. But it was great experience. And. I saw you guys have quite, quite a high ranking in Division Two. Is that right? Yeah, we finished number six in the nation that year, and uh, it was thanks to Harry Hopman giving me some real good training on you know how to give guys good workouts. I didn't know a lot about technique or strategy back then, but you know you learned a lot from Mister Hopman about how to train players in different ways. You know, and so uh, it was some great, uh, great op. It was you know I gave the guys some serious uh, you know live ball training and that, that they weren't used to. And they saw that, you know, it, it was going to be serious. And, and, uh, and I ended up getting a guy named Mike DeFranco on the team and the rest was history. He was a great, great player. What, what sticks out with your time with Harry Hopman as far as uh, your experience? You know, I had four summers with him and I just think that is the way he uh, professionally ran the uh, operation with over 60 teaching pros working. Um, in one day, you know, just the great uh, system that he had for shot making and physical conditioning. And he let people learn from each other, but it was a, 
it was a learn. It was kind of like uh, you learn as you go, but then you teach them as you go. And and I and I saw that you know you can work as hard as you want and get as good as you want, but it's up to you. Mm-hmm. It's up to it's up to the effort. And you know, a lot of times you can feed a ball to where they can make the shot, or you can feed the ball a little bit outside of their comfort zone, and and that can start off, start a very a very uh, match play difficult ball. Mm-hmm. Very true. So. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, and then, you know, you, you, you learn from there. Uh, you don't learn everything from uh, a guy like Mr. Hopman, but it was a good base. Oh, that's great. What about, uh, actually, he's one of our pillars. We, we had an entire podcast dedicated to Mr. Hopman. When I ran a program for um, two years where you get a college degree, it was really an honor to have him, you know, hire our students for the summer and um, for different internships. Sure. Where did you go from Hopman's? Oh, from Hopkins, I worked, let's see, after four summers there, I did work, let's see, I worked one, one full year with Rick Macy at the Greenleaf uh, Golf and Tennis Resort in Haines City in 1984, and it was the year after I coached at University of Central Florida as the head coach, and I got some good experience working with Rick, and I think he uh, got some, some good experience kind of seeing how the Harry Hopman system worked for some of his players. And I think it was a good, we made a good team for that one year I was there and then was lucky to get the job coaching with uh, Chuck Creasy, who was a real hot coach at the time. He was the head of the junior Davis cup team and coaching the Clemson Tigers. Mm-hmm. No, I remember, and, uh, uh, that, I remember Chuck being on the cover of uh, Eugene Scott's tennis week. No, he was uh, oh. very, very popular with what he was doing at, at Clemson back in those days. Exactly. And so, you know, I figured what a, that was a blessing because he was interviewing about 10 different coaches and he liked, he liked the way I uh, got on the court and, and I, you know, it was funny. He, they put me on the court and they wanted to see what I can do. And I said, well, I'm going to go with what I know. And so I gave him some live ball drills, some two on two live ball drills and about 10 minutes, they were on the floor, but they wanted some more. Hmm. Well, you had a connection because uh, Chuck worked for Mr. Hopman as well. Exactly. Yeah, he had, he did, he did uh, a nice job there for a while. Yeah. So that was nice. And I gave him some, some nice stories about how I worked with, uh, you know, Mike DeFranco at UCF, who he had, you know, who he was thinking about recruiting. And Mike had beaten uh, Brad Gilbert twice in the 21, in the 21 and over tour. He was that talented and he was out of Gainesville. And then we had, we had a bunch of other good players like Troy McQuaig and, you know, it was a good, it was a good team, you know? I remember seeing DeFranco play. Yeah, he was fun to watch. And yeah, then, he then was dynamite. Find, then you found your way, your way up to the cold weather, right? You went up to Boston? Yes, I got, yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe that. You know, uh, Dave Fish at Harvard said, uh, you know, the head women's job is open. It was at the Nationals. We had just lost to Stanford by, I think it was one shot when they ended up winning the whole thing. And he said, you know, uh, we got an opening for the head women's job. and why don't you come up and interview for it? And, uh, and I said, you know, I'm really geared toward coaching the men, but Hey, Harvard's Harvard. Let's give it a go. Hmm, and it, we, it, and it worked, it, it worked out. It was just a, I had to learn how to listen. Uh, and that's what I learned. Uh, Dave fish really taught me, uh, you know, that uh, it's time to listen. You can't just tell people what to do. Yeah. He's another great, uh, great example of, uh, you know, being able to work with players and, and, uh, really intelligent guy, articulate guy. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with, work with Dave and, 
just really for their summer camp uh, at Harvard. But, uh, you know, learned a lot from him as well. Yes, absolutely. And it really rounded out my coaching style, just learning from Dave and seeing the way he spoke and the way he operated with his team and the advice that he would give me. And of course, I was running my own ship, but it was it was certainly interesting to see, you know, how he how he ran things kind of uh, his way. And he said, Ed, you got to develop your own style. And, you know, but you got to learn how to listen to the players all day. And then at some point you get a chance to talk. And that's a 360 from coaching at Clemson. Mm, interesting. And uh, Brandon mentioned uh, World Team Tennis in Charlotte. Um, how, what was that experience like? Yeah, no, that was, that was a really a phenomenal experience for me because just as I, after I finished coaching at Harvard, I got the opportunity to coach there. And, uh, and that was interesting because we had 7,000 people that would show up for quite, quite a few of our matches in Charlotte in the Coliseum. And it was action packed and it was pressure packed. I had to recruit my own team. And then uh, we started off 0 and 3, and uh, it looked like we were going to go really down the tube. And, uh, and I decided I was going to start to coach them old school and really get in the trenches and teach them the way I, I knew how. And, 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 and it, 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 they really got into, you know, a little bit more down and dirty type of training. I, di- I didn't know it would work with the pros, but some of my blue collar tactics helps, but I had a great team. What can I say? They came back and I think they won like 13 in a row after that. We ended up losing in the final, like or it was the semifinal to one of Billie Jean King's teams. Uh, it was, it was exciting stuff though in, in that, in that world team tennis league. Yeah. Hats off to Billie Jean King. She just hasn't given up um, keeping team tennis alive. I would, I would think it would be oh. great. I think great would be great if, uh, you know, if team tennis was really in the forefront, I mean, I think to have fans and say if, you know, there's a, you know, if there was a, even a minor league circuit in every city. You know, just yeah, you know, that's like, what, yes, what they did last year during the pandemic was one of the greatest things I ever saw. It came down to that, uh, all those great players coming in. If you remember, they came in and played in West Virginia at that resort and they had all the top players there. And it, at the end, the, the whole season came down to one point. You remember that? Yeah, Greenbrier, yeah. It was an incredible final. I mean, that was the best season I think they ever had. Hmm. And then from there, you, you got into the business world. You set up your own program, um, placing kids in colleges and running college ID camps. Is that right? Yeah, the, yeah. The, it's, it, it started to evolve a little bit o- over the years into becoming a real nice college tennis exposure camp. and. It's with all the different head college coaches there. It it turns out to become a nice, you know, way to help get the kids, uh, you know, placed and recommended, you know, and networked into different programs. And you're still doing that now, the exposure camps? Yes, still doing the college tennis exposure camps. You know what? They're too good to stop now. And they're only two day camps. And we used to do the four day sleepover camps, but the kids have gotten too busy for things of this nature. And they're, they're so programmed out. I'm sure you guys agree. Totally agree. Totally agree. My brother, actually, going back probably now, I want to say easily 20 years, more than that, uh, where he, he attended one of your college placement camps. And um, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about what that camp entails when you're working with all these juniors aged, I would guess, 14 to about 18, you know, many different college coaches. Um, just kind of go through a, a, a day at camp 
for, for one of those? Sure. Well, we usually have a nice little uh, opening ceremony introducing all the head college coaches so the parents can see that, yes, all these head coaches that we're advertising, they're actually going to be there. And, they're, you know, and I give them their nickname and we give the coaches their due and they get out there and they, every, every court has a head college coach on the court instructing the kids that sign up. And we take them, you know, 14 to 18, but there are a lot of them are really 10th and 11th graders. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're ninth graders if they're super hungry and, and it's the right player. Uh, but, you know, they get a chance to work on their uh, singles, uh, live ball, directional drills where the coaches can really, you know, give them uh, some direction as to where to hit the ball and, 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 and which shot to use and when to come in and things of this nature and how to take away some of those silly unforced errors. So they get a little bit of learning during the competitions the first day with the instructional drills in the morning and that would be singles based. And then in the afternoon, they get um, some nice seminars where they get to break out with the coaches and talk about college tennis. As you know, there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of answers. Uh, And then in the afternoon, we do our favorite game of one-on-one doubles, uh, which as you know, is an exciting uh, tournament circuit now, uh, which is sanctioned with the UTR. With uh, before we really get into one-on-one doubles with the exposure camps, it's the same format in the summer as it is during the school year. Yeah, the exposure camps are really in the uh, is in December. Like we're going to have another, we have a big one coming up here in Lakeland next weekend. So we're we're allowed to do them in the on the holiday breaks when the coaches are out of season, and then again in the summer we do some of those camps. If my math is correct, it's your 33rd year. Is that, is that right? Of doing the camps? Yes. Yes. It's 33 years. I still feel like a young rocker though, you know? <laughs> That's good. You, uh, you must've, I mean, you've seen all the changes in college tennis during that time then. I mean, is there anything in particular that, that sticks out that's really changed about the college game or, you know, even the, the rules and regulations of the NCAA? Yes, I I think they've uh, they they downplayed. I think a little. They've taken away the, the uh, uh, some of the doubles action. A, l- a lot of the doubles. It's now just one point. Mm-hmm. It used to, and even at, even at the D two and D three level, I believe it's it, it's gone now down to one point. It used to be all the doubles would count for one point each. When I was coaching, I remember at Harvard and at Clemson, it was one point each match. Right. But now it's it's. Uh, it's de-emphasized. It's not as important. So college teams don't work on those skills as much as they used to. Sure. Hardly. So you can have more baseliners uh, playing the game, and there's less development of the players these days. I have found uh, because of it. Right. It's funny. It's. I think that's actually called the Scarpa system. That's uh, was my college coach Paul Scarpa, uh, who who had really encouraged I think to keep doubles in in uh, college tennis. Um, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the doubles matches were played after the singles matches, and then now they're yeah played now before that, yeah now they started off, which is kind of nice. I kind of like it started the way they're starting off. I'd like to see if the, every match counted for one, right? But you know that that's just the way they vote. So you know it's it's all it's all voted that way, and I guess they have their reasons why it is. But it is a very short set and i think it's a no ad set and a lot of coaches really complain that it's way too short yeah and uh, the the kids don't really get a chance to get into it and 
if they get broke and that's that that's ball game you know yeah we uh it wasn't that long ago i was in college or probably was sort of long ago now but uh we would play an eight game eight game pro set regular scoring and now i think it's a six game set with no ad which is pretty quick no ad yeah so it's better than nothing but um you know it's the doubles is still big but not as big as it used to be if you're a great doubles coach you're hey, you know, you're, you're, you're handcuffed a little bit cause it only counts for one, you know, one point. Yeah. I mean, it was just six games. I mean, six, uh, it's not divisible by four. I, did, that was done because they're trying to get tennis, uh, matches shorter, obviously, and get them on TV. Is that right? Yeah. I think at the high, at the, at the upper level, they were, you know, I think the administration, the, the ITA, the whole goal and the vision was to get the mat, get the, get the matches a little bit shorter so that, you know, the kids could maybe get back to class and coaches that are coaching with two teams, it would, it would be a little bit more manageable with time, you know, and I would, I think many of the coaches were, were really liking that. Of course, you'll have a, a lot of arguments the other way that says, you know, the tradition of, of the long matches is what they're missing, but this is, uh, this is what's happened. And, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's allowed it to be a little bit more on TV. I don't know how much TV we have seen with it though. Going back um, with college tennis, if you could bring something back from the old days, uh, what would it be? You know, um, from the old days, well, you know, the old, I tell you, I used to play, um, one day I played 12 sets, okay? I played, uh, I think it was six sets, six sets against Wake Forest, and I think later in the day, six sets against Indiana when they came in that afternoon, so. I don't know if I would like to see it go back to full two out of three sets. So I think the, the you know, and you got the wood rackets and all. So I don't know. You know, I kind of like the way the games evolved, except I, I think that the doubles, uh, we're not seeing as much of the, uh, of the serve and volley game as we need to. Yeah. Is that what inspired you to pursue the one-on-one doubles tournaments? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, in the, in the doubles, we're seeing way too many people serve and stay back and, it's too much of a singles game. And I said, Oh man, we got to keep the, we got to preserve and showcase the serve and volley game. And, and it, it was a dream come true when it actually started to crystallize. And how many years ago did you put that together? One-on-one? I started that in 2004 and came up with the idea. And the guy who uh, was my first signup was the guy who beat Boris Becker at Wimbledon. You might remember, uh, do yeah, Peter Duhan. You remember Peter? You, as a matter of fact, you were at that tournament. Peter was playing. Yeah, Peter Duhan. Yeah, no. he, he he yeah he sent me a forty five dollar check and he said I'm flying in from Arkansas and can't believe someone's finally putting this together. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. With um, first time I saw the drill, which you turned into a game, was in the seventies. My oldest brother was the assistant coach of the New York Rangers, and I was allowed to go into felt form the, the end of the year in turn was Madison square garden. Yeah. And you know, I was allowed to sit there and watch, take it all in because the players, the secretaries from the Rangers would call me up and I would um, go up to their office and, you know, if it was tickets to Broadway or whatever, I was handing those to the player. So I was, I was an important gopher, but I saw a uh, Frew McMillan and Bob Hewitt. And I was certainly new to tennis at that time. And, there was a total novelty that, you know, one, one is a deuce court player and one's an ad court player and they just, they play, 
you know, cross court tennis. They play diagonal, but um, yeah, the one on one. I remember the late Bobby Curtis, a uh, good friend of both of ours. Uh, you know, I contacted him on your behalf, and you know, he made one on one sanctioned tournament. That was many, yeah. many years ago. Now, Bobby unfortunately just passed away, but at one time, Bobby, uh, and I think people should know this, is that one weekend a month. There was only doubles tournaments in Florida. But what happened is yeah. people stopped playing. And then, you know, Bobby, uh, people love Bobby Curtis, but it was, I believe, 15% of your doubles ranking helped your singles ranking. And I remember yeah. Bobby going, that's just gutless. Billy Jean King, way back when, said there should just be one ranking. You know, the money, the distribution of money has always been lopsided between singles and doubles. But why don't you just tell I us a, a little bit about so the people who are newer to tennis, uh, how one-on-one doubles works. Sure. Well, one-on-one doubles is the cross-court serve and volley singles game played uh, cross-court with the alley included. So it's a, it's a nice, safe, I don't know how safe it is, but it's a nice space where you can get more successful serve and volley points going. And you get two points, which is a two-point bonus for the winning volley and overhead that the opponent doesn't touch. And that's been a new rule as of the beginning of 2021. And players seem to really have enjoyed the eight events with that new rule. At one point, didn't uh, Tommy Haas talk you into having uh, the players stay back, but then you went back to the principal of you had to come in? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did have some nice conversations with Tommy and he did influence me to, to, you know, maybe give that a shot for a couple events, but and uh, it, it was brought to my attention that it certainly uh, takes away from the excitement of the game. So decided to uh, go back to uh, what really makes the game exciting. You know, you, you know, when you stay back, even if you have a two point play, players tend to want to stay back more than they should. And mm. I think the game is more exciting when you're serving and volleying, don't you? Oh, for sure. We asked um, teaching pros uh, if they could just play 15 to 20 minutes a day, have their juniors play one bounce doubles. So the server comes in, the returner comes in and it's, you know, it's right at huh. you. It was actually Vic, Braden, oh, yeah. Vic Braden's favorite drill is had have one player stand in the middle of the baseline, another player stand in the middle of the baseline and they just feed the balls right at each other. We, we call that rat-a-tat-tat. Oh yeah. There's so many variations of the, of the, of the drill that the college coaches are using, as you know, and that, you know, now they're playing challenge matches with it. And I learned the game from Chuck Creasy, but you know, we, the drill, it was a drill, but we had challenge matches with this. Right. And we, and we never had a line down the middle. And so the guys would cheat each other a little bit, you know, how that would go, but they were playing the game and they were making these first volleys. And I was like, Wow. And now all of a sudden they're playing doubles and it wasn't doubles, Steve. It was serve and volley doubles. No. And I'm, and so I, yeah, I, I took that to Harvard with me and and had the women do it. No, I think every tennis court, you know, now we have the 10 and under lines and you know, people fought that, but there really should be a line right down the middle of the court. You know, they'll have the off color, they'll have two, two shades of green. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that if people really, and I know it's great that you're uh, making strides, one-on-one doubles is, is growing, but I think that if more people knew that, older people, uh, pickleball wouldn't be growing so fast if you could just play. Yes, yes. So we do need to get it on the television a lot more for people to see it. 
And, you know, right now, I think the tennis channel has, you know, they're very, very busy with what they're doing. But at the same time, I think that they got to recognize that, that Amer- uh, America needs to see serve and volley tennis. And we've got a lot of chances to get one-on-one doubles with some of the major events, some of the major players playing. It's just a matter of time now when we can get more of it on tennis channel. And what's your connection now, one-on-one with uh, UTR? Oh, with the UTR. So over this past year, um, I I got the tournament sanctioned with the UTR and on their platform, which has really been exciting because, as you know, with all the kids out there, they're all wondering what their UTR is and the college coaches are respecting the algorithm. And, you know, I've had eight events and players that enter the tournaments you know, they get, they get to see that their need, that UTR needle go up or down based on how they played. And so, you know, I've seen some players move up, you know, half a point after a tournament. It's nice. We always tease people say you have to have two things to be a serve and volley or a serve and a volley. But what about, let's go, right. back, let's go back to grips. I mean, you see people, you know, in the ready position, you know, the returning serve or the full Western grip. What are your comments on that where, you know, kids really at an early age, they just, they don't have the grips to play a game where they go forward. They're just, it's amazing how they're just looking for everything to be a forehand. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and, and I know I had talked about this a little bit in this New York tennis magazine article. If we can learn not to run around the, the backhand as much and hit some of those inside backhand return, you know, if we can learn how to hit some more backhands and make that into a weapon, you know, it can't just be big forehands because we're never getting to the net if all we're worried about is hitting is hitting forehands. Yeah. With uh, you know, it's 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 unreal. I mean, in the singles game, you see how many people are running around their backhands. No, for sure, I get in trouble. I say clones taught by clowns. You know, everybody everybody's taught the same way, but now at the mm-hmm. at the NCAs, um, yeah, I mean Max Cressy, who's you know, climbing the ladder. I spoke to Andy Fitzell just earlier today. He's one of the only guys who's taking a second serve return and coming in and the net appearances he has. But in college tennis, I would say right now, I'd like to get your opinion on this. You go to a D1 match, men's, and two out of three teams are staying back. They're playing one up, one back. Mm-hmm. What do you think the breakdown is? Do you think it's... Uh, that drastic where the, the it's the majority now stay stay back instead of come in. Yeah, when I go to the NCAA's, it, it's true. I think you're, and and I just don't think that it, there's not enough for conviction. And now, if if the if the doubles point counted for one on each match like it used to, that that's where I'd like to see the game return to how it used to be, because now we don't have the you don't have the same time for college coaches to work on with that conviction to get their players to buy into serving in Bali. And I think, it's and, very, you know, go ahead. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a big problem, you know, is I don't know. I, maybe the college coaches have lost their passion to, uh, to work on this with their kids. Um, I don't know. There are some college coaches I know that still do t- teach this game, this part of the game with passion, but, you're probably not seeing them as much as we need to. Well, I believe it's 20% of the money in pro tennis goes to doubles and you have to split that. Um, yeah, I just, that's another thing coming back to Billie Jean King. If, if there was more money, 
just the, the distribution. Um, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about how the, and I know it's improving. I know you, you spent a lot of time with my son, Connor. He played for three years on the tour. He got to be ranked two zero zero, And, you know, he was just under a hundred thousand um, dollars. Right. You know, he used to have a pretty good line. Uh, people would say, gee, you're a good doubles player. He goes, well, not really. I just know where to stand. <laughs> um, Boy, he. I used to ask to say, you know, you could also say, plus hang on to the way you hang on to the racket. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the marquee players, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, Brandon has, um, you know, several clubs down here, multiple sites, and obviously he's doing a lot with adult players who primarily, if not almost 100% play doubles. Mm-hmm. I think it's rather sad. I mean, I'm a big Federer fan and Nadal and, you know, you go to a beautiful place like Indian Wells. They've done it there. They've done it at the US Open where I think people are, they're sitting in the stands and they're watching Roger Federer sit on a bench. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, I do think that when they, they, the administrators of tennis, I know Wayne Bryan, the father of the twins, tournament directors were even talking about dropping doubles at one point and that the uh, no ad and the, the 10 point match tiebreaker it it has got doubles on more show courts, but it's just bizarre to me. Uh, what do you think the reasons for that are that you have all these adults, Brandon, you comment on that. Well, all these adults that play um, doubles, doubles, and they're not they, even and, watching and it. They yeah. don't get, they don't get a chance to watch it. No. And I, and I would, I would hope that these tournament directors start to make a, an effort to get doubles more on television and, uh, as you know, I'm going to be pushing with the one-on-one doubles to make it into a stadium format for these big tournaments. I think that's where my next push is going to be. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what these guys can do. It, it made it's all. It, I think it all comes down to the dollars and how they want to uh, shape the game. But uh, it only it only takes one or two tournament directors to to to, to turn the to turn the paradigm a little bit and, and shift the game a little bit more towards the excitement of doubles and serving volley doubles and one-on-one doubles. And yeah, it just the, takes one big, one big guy to turn this thing around. Yeah. With exos, um, you know, I have to hesitate and say, you know, I, if it wasn't for senior tennis, I would have never seen like Pancho Gonzalez play tennis live, but I'm not that big a fan of senior tennis. You know, the guys are in their forties and they're not moving so well, but everybody wants the personalities to be around and it's nostalgic. It's fun. I think it'd be great to see the, the seniors come back and play one-on-one doubles. Um, Oh, now you're talking from your lips to God's ears. Uh, These guys would, these guys should do it. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously I, I, I would love to work with all those guys. The head of that tour is, is, is coach Courier. And I think Courier can play a great game of one-on-one doubles. I'm sure he's practiced it. He just, has to be, you know, he has to visualize it a little bit more in his sleep. And so, <laughs> so with a guy like Tom, Tommy Haas and Tommy could play this game great too. And, and, you know, McEnroe's ready to take a bite out of somebody. So oh, yeah. all these guys can, all these guys are ready, you know? You know, actually our listeners, uh, Brandon spent time in, in Tampa. That's where he met you personally. I, I, I was there 15 years. I know we, we could talk a little bit about the juniors that spent time with you that I coached. Um, but Courier on the forehand grip, I mean, he's a little bit past in the Eastern. Backhand. I think in the backhand, too. Backhand ground stroke. But uh, <laughs> but Courier, I mean, he's knocking on the door to win Wimbledon. Uh, I mean, amazing uh, how far he went. Uh, I know when he was in, actually when Andy Roddick was inducted to the Hall of Fame, he said, uh, 
self-deprecating where I goes, well, I feel pretty good about getting in. He goes, uh, because Jim Curry was sitting behind me and he also had a crappy back end. <laughs> but, um, yeah. no, the, I think the seniors were playing that. Um, no, I, I think if pickleball is a great sport, I see people playing, I walk by pickleball every day. Um, courts are packed. I was talking to some, uh, seniors today from Montreal and, they, I said, were you tennis players? I said, no, we've never played tennis. But one of mm. our, one of our uh, associates said that, you know, what he doesn't like about pickleball, that's invading tennis. But, boy, they're having live rallies. And I think another thing, mm-hmm. too, um, getting the, the juniors, uh, I think the transition balls, um, you know, if I know if I was to go out and play tennis, I probably would want to play mini tennis with an orange ball. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, have you experimented with it, with that a little bit where people playing double older people playing with the green dot ball? No, uh, you know, I haven't had much experience with that, but I tell you the pickleball, it, it, that train's left the station. It's gotten real big. Uh, I think, you know, they started it in 65 and they got their private funding, I think about eight years ago and it's, it's taken off. I mean, every, they got over 4 million players playing. Yeah. Is there, I mean, I think with the USTA, um, you know, is there any way that pickleball can not take over tennis courts? I mean, we, we, I guess we just have to do a better job in tennis. Um, you know, all the reasons why, um, we're losing tennis players. We're losing tennis courts, right? The, the space and the whole bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think our, uh, our governing bodies could, could make, could maybe make the sport a little bit more exciting. Who knows? It's, it's, I, I think the court's gotten too big. And I think one-on-one doubles can help, but I don't know if it if it's if it's going to accommodate the pickleball masses because it is still a, a, an advanced game. It's a niche game, and you're not going to get a quantity of players playing one-on-one doubles. I think you're going to get a quality of good players doing it. But pickle pickleball's for the masses, and you know, and it's you can if you're if you were once a tennis player, you can play pickleball all day. Mm-hmm. But if you were if you were once if you were once a tennis player, you not necessarily can compete anymore, especially in one on one doubles, which you know demands you to come forward and make some volleys. Mm-hmm. I was one time talking to Chuck, so, Chuck, you know, Chuck Gill at the U.S. Open, and this was several years ago now. And he goes, "It's a casual sport." I just wish they leave, would leave it a casual sport. I was a little disappointed to see our governing bodies of tennis teaching the professional tennis registry and the USPTA to overnight become pickleball organizations. What you, I know. your, your dad uh, got you started in tennis, correct? And yes, he did. And how, how about back then? Did your dad play? Did you play a lot of uh, doubles with your dad? Yes, we did. We played some doubles and uh, we played, we played singles. I think I was, I played him in the finals of the consolation of the club tournament when I was 13 and I and I lost to him six in the third, and and and, and that was his last win against me. All right, <laughs> it just seems you know the youth versus veteran matches for juniors to hang around and get the opportunity to play with some adults. There's many things um, like the NDR, NTRP, the National Tennis Rating Program, that just never took off for juniors. And you know now, like the senior, the age groups say you know, they drop twenty fives, but say thirty fives. Now you can just sign up for the 35s and go to nationals. It used to be you had to qualify. You had to be so ranked so high in your section. But I think many things, um, the NTRP has been very successful, especially for uh, 
you know, the indoor leagues. So I think it's been a very good business model, but um, I think that's something that uh, years ago, tennis, like golf, many times uh, someone learns to play golf, their parents take them out golfing. And it used to be that, you know, kids would play, uh, you know, some pickup doubles with their, their mother and father. And hopefully they're being encouraged to go to the net, but it's, uh, yeah, it's just amazing. It's serving no volley. Just Oh, I know. And there, there needs to be a lot more of uh, this. And I think that's the reason I started the one-on-one doubles is, you know, let's break the game down and let's learn how to play this game first. Right. Before we start putting those doubles teams together. Cause I don't think the people really know these kids, what they should be doing when they, I don't think they've had that initial one-on-one doubles training or instruction, yet alone a tournament. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned earlier, you brought the one-on-one doubles from Chuck Creasy to your, to your team, to your women's team at Harvard. Um, yeah. I, th- I think back to, you know, uh, our, another coach, you know, Chad Berryhill, uh, his involvement and Steve's involvement with the HCC women's team in Tampa. Oh Yeah. And uh, yeah. the rules they instituted, and, and I know there was a lot of one-on-one doubles that they played. Um, when you introduced this to the female players, were there any were there any differences to when you were doing this with the men? Yeah, I mean there was um, there was there was uh, some pushback initially uh, because uh, I think they were they the women at Harvard half of them thought I was definitely out of my mind trying to teach them this because they thought that I was trying to change their game mm-hmm. as opposed to, as opposed to adding to their game. You see the difference, right? So even the smart, smart women at Harvard had to understand that difference. And I had to explain it to them, even though they were definitely smarter than me in certain ways, I had to make them feel that they were still, you know, learning and, uh, something about the game. Sure. So, you know, when they, when they learned how to play this game and they started to see that they were getting good at it, and they go, well, should we serve in volley in our doubles coach? And I said, what do you think? I said, absolutely, we want to play to win versus playing not to lose. Right. And then the light, the light bulb went on. So all six of my players were serving in volley. And my number one player did not want to serve in volley. So I said, listen, you might as well as sit the bench for the doubles because this is what our team is all about. Mm. So that's the way that went. <laughs> Actually, yeah, going back to Chad Burial, it, it was a great opportunity for us. We ran a co-op at Hillsborough Community College, 28 courts. It was uh, 12 clay, 16 hard. And the one rule was you had to have a palm down serve. And Oh, yeah. And two, um, you had to serve and volley both balls. And I... I led that program for 10 years. I mean, Barry Hill came out of Ferris State. He's 22 years old, became a head coach. He certainly, in no time, a very bright guy, hardworking, had autonomy. But I believe he was there five years. You know, he won the national championship once. I think he was in the finals uh, three times. And, you know, he certainly was instrumental in helping the players after two years move on and play two more years of college tennis. And he told me, he told me every last kid... I mean, we worked together side by side is that every last girl, when they left the junior college after playing two years of going forward, not a hundred percent, not one coach said, okay, yeah, you can continue to go in, Mm -hmm. but they had to go back. You know, they, they were just told, no, you're a girl and you have to stay back. Just, just. just This is a big topic you're hitting on. You see what we, what's happened is that 
we've given up and we, we, we don't believe in our women's athleticism. And so, and, and I believe in our women's athleticism. So that's why, you know, I think it's time that we grow this game with the women. I think, I think the top WTA, there's going to be a couple of WTA ladies that are going to do this game real well. We've got to show the youth, the youth, the young ladies that this game can be played by the top college girls and the top uh, pro pro women. And we know they can play this game beautifully. It's just, they're not encouraged to do it and our men don't believe. And, and this is a problem. And, you know, I, and I think there's some women's coaches who do believe, and there are some men's coaches, but they're far and few between maybe 1% subsetting. I know. Yeah. I mean, you go to college there for four years and the, the sales pitch is, Hey, this is how you're going to make it in pro tennis is come play on our college team. And I think that what a better way to become a complete player like Tissipas at one point, he, he was signing up for doubles tournaments. I know now he's played some with his brother. Um, you know, the, with people listening to our podcast, um, we talked about doubles. I lived in Tyler, Texas for 10 years. And um, it was Lissa Kimmel, uh, Julie Scott, Carmen Clark, Laura Barrows. And they all played each other. They were in the 5A state finals. And... Um, everyone said, no, girls can't go to the net. Girls can't go to the net. But if you get them to go to the net from the time they're in the fifth, sixth grade, you know, we always say information, ideas, and insights equal instincts. And if someone, say someone signs up for high school tennis and they're a freshman and they can win staying one up, one back as a freshman, what are they going to play when they're a sophomore? Mm -hmm. So I think you have to bite the bull and go, hey, we're going to develop. Um, well, with uh, last week, we or two weeks ago, I guess it was, we interviewed Doug Verdick, uh, son of Jim Verdick. And of course, like you're saying, back in the day, each, each match was worth one point. And it was, granted, it was wooden rackets. Um, Chris Clore, uh spent a lot of time with Chris. He's got a great line. Everybody's trying to launch a missile. You know, it's yeah. just everybody's just trying to blast the forehand. And, yeah. you know, and, then, wow. and then people, you know, certainly they hit that one TV screamer you know, Welby Van Horn used to say, one of the worst things that can happen is you hit a lucky shot. You, mm -hmm. know, you hit one lucky shot. Braden used to say that, you know, your forehand's really not that good. It's just you're, you're, um, you're comparing it to your backhand. But uh, that was way yeah. back when, yeah. when people had one-handed backhands. Yeah. Um, with, you know, all these courses for coaching women, I'm surprised women stand for that. It's like, no, I mean, you know, right. the men and women should be coached the same. Um, well, that's right. I mean, there is a fella down here in the Bradenton area at the Inspiration Academy. He's got his girls serving and volleying a lot and one-on-one -on -one doubles and coming in a lot. And, you know, I, and I was at the Pate Tennis Academy up in uh, South Carolina doing a phenomenal job there. They started him off at the midcourt area with the quick volleys, and he put six of his women in our one-on-one -on -one doubles pro tournament, and it was some incredible battle of the sexes. You would have been proud to see that. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, who's coaching and who, who believes. Senior moment. The coach who leads uh, in Inspiration Academy or a lot of positive things. First name is uh, Ashley. Coach Ashley Hobson. Ashley Hobson, yeah. He's doing a nice job. We, you know, uh, Peter, he worked with Peter Burwash. Peter, um, I loved one of his drills for doubles. He had so many. But he would get kids to play in one service box. You know, mini tennis with no oh. alleys. And, you know, it's just... It's, it's it's like the size of a bedroom. I mean, it's uh, 
21 by 13 and a half, and you, you have to play every other ball. Uh, Vandermeer had so many great drills for, for doubles, uh, just to get people to just rally up the middle, every other ball. Um, yeah. I think great drills, fun drills. Braden used to have people play a set and it was automatic poach. Automatic yeah. poach where you had to, you know, you know, you had to return cross court and the person had to poach. Hmm. Um, well, that's right. I mean, you know, you're a vic- you're a product of your coaching or you're a victim of it. You know, that's one, that's one of my sayings. And I mean, if they, if, if it was you and I coaching a lot of these players together, as we'd be doing a lot of these, you know, volley, mid-court volley drills, establishing some confidence there, and then adding the all-court game into their singles game. But as you know, a lot of these players will only do what their coaches are going to work with them on and what, what the coaches have experience with. You know, a lot of it comes down to the comfort level of the coach, too, maybe Maybe they don't, or maybe they're not as comfortable of teaching all the footwork and the racket work involved with the midcourt volley. You see, that's a whole nother, whole nother topic. A lot of them know how to teach going to the right, hitting a forehand, and going to the left and hitting the backhand. You're telling them now to teach how to how to do a split step and and how to step out and how to bend and then how to move the racket for the volleys. Now you're asking that coach to teach all that. Are you kidding me? Well, I, I feel sorry for college coaches. I mean, they're getting kids that are 18 years old and they haven't played any doubles. They haven't played any, it's like Martina Narazilova says about mixed doubles. You mean it's still real doubles, you know, where it's the one up, one back. Um, with uh, So yeah, you and I were in Tampa a long time. With uh, You used to have uh, our juniors come over and when you'd have out, out-of-towners come in, I think of... Uh, yeah. You know, Austin Krychek is still playing. My son Connor and Ryler, they were, I think Austin could get there. Um, you know, they weren't quite good enough to uh, play for the Davis Cup, but all three of them, uh, some of my critics, I said, well, you know, I know I'm doing something wrong, but we had three kids from Tampa that at least became mm. practice partners for the, for the Davis Cup team. But uh, oh yeah, Austin born in 1990. Um, so, yeah, he's still playing. Um, oh, he's doing a fantastic job. Yeah. I think if someone like Megan Broderick, um, you know, she didn't stay with tennis after college. I mean, she's done some different things. I know she worked at McEnroe's a little bit and but she had the skill set. You know, you can just see it from a mile away. The the Arthur Ashe line about Welby Van Horn, you can just see it from a mile away if a if a kid has been taught now taught well. Now you go to a futures and kids are playing matches and they don't even warm up at the net. Mm-hmm. They don't take volleys in order. No. I tell you, Ryler DeHart's done a great job just keeping in the game. He did a whole year of this one-on-one doubles, but boy, what a great job he did with getting the number one at and, uh, at Illinois and getting top hundred twenty in the world. And and uh, he had a chance, you know, he had a chance to hang it up. But I think one-on-one doubles has kept him in the game, Steve. And, uh, but of all of a sudden, pickleball's starting to take his time now. So I'm getting a little worried about that. Yeah, you know, um, Again, I walk by uh, this park where they play pickleball every day, and we're coaching a young girl, um, Alanis Hamilton, and she's she's a very good player for her age, one of the better players in the country. And her dad, he, you know, really no table tennis, played at a high level, and you know, yeah, she should sign up. I mean, I I was told Ryler's making some money playing pickleball. Oh yeah, he is. He's doing. He's proud of it. He's he's keeping busy. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the one-on-one doubles game is not as easy as he was hoping, but uh, he started off real hot and all of a sudden he's recognizing there's some tough competition out there. So he's got to, he's got to really train at it to, to try to, you know, beat some of these top guys and he's got the game to do it though. He, you know, when, he's, when, he's still a fabulous player. Actually, he was Thomas Olerstedt, who was a student of mine, Thomas from Sweden. He went to this program where he got a two-year degree. Oh yeah. He started Ryler, then sent Ryler to me when he was transitioning from a two-hander to a one-hander. And then I, I coached him, uh, I guess, from the sixth grade. You know, then he went to Illinois and he played for another student, Craig Tyler, who went to uh, um, the same program that Olerstedt went to. But I think if people are taught from the get-go to go forward, um, I think right. R- Ryler's tennis, you know, he got away from that a little bit. I remember when he played Nadal at um, the U.S. Open, uh, you know, I've had a lot to do with uh, Steve Denton, who p- played so high. He was number two in the world in doubles, 11 in singles. And I'd say, hey, Denton, over here. What do you, what do you, what do you tell the heart? He said, you need to play the way you used to. He used to go forward much more. I think that, you know, my son Connor... I think Ty Tucker helped him so much with fitness, but um, I think those are two players that lost their game style when they went to college. Mm-hmm. My son, Connor and Ryler, they were all court players and then they became more just offensive baseliners. Um, yes. Yes. I do think college coaches get really nervous and really, really nervous. I mean, maybe it's because their job's on the line and you just go for it, for it, for it, just get for it, for it. And, um, there's no doubt about it that, you know, a freshman's going to go to the net just like a little kid goes to the net to lose at a faster rate. Freshman's going to go in and, you know, they're not going to do so well, but they're, they're going to be there for four years. And, you know, back, back to Jim Verdick, uh, tomorrow on Facebook, uh, we don't really say that enough on these podcasts, but we've had a, a post on Facebook. We've missed two days in over 12 years putting something up. And we have this, um, letter that Jim Verdick read to his incoming freshman, but we also have a summary and you were talking about unranked high school players when they came in as a freshman, but that by the time they were seniors, you know, people should look at it on great base tennis Facebook tomorrow. Jim Lair used to say, yeah, a, a, a verdict player would be carrying the water jug as a freshman and then they'd be carrying the championship trophy as a senior. But I just, mm-hmm. I, I think that word really is, problematic throughout all of tennis is, uh, you know, winning now. So I think a college coach is going to say, you know, I know Ty Tucker has said this that, well, my, my players are playing for Ohio state, which is true. You know, that's his, that's why he's been so successful, but they, the ground strokes are initially better than the volleys. The ground Mm -hmm. strokes are initially better than the volleys, but to switch that around, you got to take it on the chin a few times. You know, you only learn, by making mistakes. So, you know, if you don't get up to the net, you know, we're always telling people if you're going to singles or doubles, ideally you should lose in a, a point ending situation. Um, yeah. Uh, American tennis is going to get better if we can get, get, get more of this going, you know, more all court action. Obviously you don't want to run in like with a chicken with his head cut off, but you got to come in on the right ball and <laughs> You know, you don't go in just to go in, right? But right. in singles, you the opportunities. You know, you can actually mix your serve and volley up, and you can come in on that mid-court ball, which a lot of kids are still waiting for the ball to come back to them, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to hitting that mid-court ball. And the biomechanics of hitting that approach shot and running forward is very awkward for them. I mean, if I was to retrain them, any ball hitting the middle of the line 
that's a green light. It's hit and you go. Mm-hmm. As opposed to letting the ball keep coming back to you. See? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the balls that are a little behind the service line, we can still hit that, but we got to train that and practice that. See? Hit and go, hit and go. And then we're going to start hitting to the right part of the court, start coming in, start seeing how those volley directionals play out. And there's ways in which I think uh, we can develop our players better to become better all-court players. Big Braden used to always quote uh, Freddie McNair. He played such great doubles. And he said if he's, if he's he poaches and he gets burned down the line, he's going to go on the very next ball. He just psychologically doesn't want to let the person think that that they own, they own him. He's going to go um, with uh, yeah. There's so much we could talk about. The, the doubles though is 36 feet wide, so singles is 27. You divide 36 by two, you get 18. So it's, as you said, with one-on-one doubles, it's much easier to be able to be successful. But in mm-hmm. real real doubles with adult-sized players, open tennis. You just think of your wingspan, you know, your racket's 27 inches, so you just say two two feet. And your arm's about the same length as your racket's two feet, so that's four feet. You take one stride on a diagonal step, that's three, that's seven feet. So you got a, you got an aggressive partner. Um, granted, when you're younger, it's, it's, it's not that case because um, you're simply smaller. Not only can you be lobbed easily, but you can be passed easily. But your wingspan, you know, you just, with one step, you've got – seven feet going one way, seven feet going the other way. That's 14 feet. If you've got an aggressive partner, you're really in good doubles. You're really coming in behind your serve. You should only have to cover about 15 feet. You know, we, yeah. we, we quote Braden all the time where, uh, but if your serve is a helium balloon, if it's like, it's like throwing up a grenade and running underneath it, if you beat your own serve to the net, <laughs> So, you know, we definitely have to have people learn to serve better. Um, so we have to teach better. I think that's one of the problems, too, with game-based teaching and that we've, we've gone away from static balance. And, you know, now uh, the parents will shop and bop. If I've got, I tease people, say, I've got fired by so many 12-year-olds. Because if you take your time mm-hmm. and you really teach technique, um, over 85% of players end the, throughout their whole day, I mean, they take it to the grave, be a little bit morbid that they had some version of palm up in their serve. But I think with Connors, you know, he won the U.S. Open and doubles playing with Nastasi, but there was so much money in it oh, yeah. that, that he stopped playing doubles. Borg won Davis Cup, and he stopped playing doubles. That's where, you know, I think two heroes for uh, for this cause, one-on-one doubles and saving doubles would be McEnroe and Edberg because they're two guys that were number one at both. And they should just be commended applauded for that all the time that's just something that you know i'd love to hear that once every pele- every telecast as they go McEnroe and edberg you know then you know you take people like martina and billy gene king how many how many uh you know they would go and play all three events um with um is, is edberg is edberg still playing you know, I'll tell you a story about Edberg. I don't know, but I've been to the town uh, Vex show. I'm not saying that correctly in Sweden a few times, and he he married a gal from there. He lives there. They tease that there's a, a drink like Gatorade that he endorses, but he's never taken a sip of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Greg Rosetsky reached the U.S. Open uh, two different times, um, you know, all tennis players uh, have a little bit of ego, and Rosetsky's ego is a little healthy. But he was very humble, sharing that he had never taken a set from Edberg 
but when they would play, they would just play, they would just play one set. You know, it's like when uh, Edberg was coaching Fetter and people said, why don't you come to the net? And he did come to the net more when he was being, when he was working with Edberg. And they said, why don't you come to the net more like Edberg? And he said, if I volleyed like Edberg, I would. Right. I've heard Fetter say that what people are really afraid of, and I think people should listen to the Fed, is they're really afraid of the, the low volley. So I understand in singles, like a Jimmy Connors, where he used to set it up for, for one volley. You want to come in and, and get that volley ideally above the level of the net. But that doesn't really work in doubles. In doubles, um, you know, I think in the Stasi one time, he was playing against uh, Cliff Drysdale. Drysdale started coming in on Nastasi's second serve. And Nastasi, the great entertainer, said, no, 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 no. I'm coming in first. You have to wait for the ball to bounce. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, and what kind of logic is that, you know, okay, I'm serving. The rule is that you have to wait for the ball to bounce. Um, that, I think that would be very much like the, the U.S. going, okay, there's no longer going to be wars. We don't need defense anymore, and we're going to get rid of the Air Force. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you got attacked by, by air. Um, you certainly see a lot more swinging volleys today than you do conventional volleys. But I think you can detect that by just looking at people in the ready position. You can see the way, oh, yeah. the way they're hanging onto the racket. I was going to ask you, Absolutely. When, when you start these tournaments, you know, I'm sure you've, you know, you've got uh, names that you recognize, names you don't recognize. How quickly can you kind of look across the courts and, and see the player that's going to be in the finals? You know, you just never know. It's, uh, what's so cool about the game is it's a little bit of an equalizer at, at, a, at, a, at, this, at a good level. With these UTR tournaments, you can have the seniors in there mixed in with some of the ATP guys uh, that are, you know, on the tour. You can have some top juniors. You just never know. You can have some college guys. I, I, saw, I saw a guy from St. Leo who played for St. Leo upset Ryder DeHart in the last one. Oh, and I would have never picked. And of course, that's a, that's a, a Chad Berryhill player, and we know Chad's been teaching a lot of one-on-one doubles over the year. And congrats to his na- his national championship. But you're talking about Federer. I mean, he said, you know, why am I number one in the world at the age of 37? He said, shame on everybody else. You haven't been teaching me all court games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, people, he, you remember that? Remember, yeah. remember that speech he yeah. gave? Yeah, he man. said, "There's no all court. There's no all court coaches." Very true. Yeah. Well, what I'll have to do is I'm going to call Barry all up and say, okay, was DeHart serving staying back or was he coming in? <laughs> you know, DeHart- no, he was coming in. He was, DeHart's not, see, what DeHart's not doing as much of is he's not coming in enough on his returning game. And a lot of these guys are not coming in enough on their returning game, Steve. They're serving in volley and fine, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have to. But there's no rule about the return. Okay, you, gotta, you can stay back all you want. I find that the better players hit that return mm. and look to get in when 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 it makes sense, right? It's true. Or they're, or they're hitting and charging on that baseline shot. You hit that's your approach shot is your baseline shot in one-on-one doubles. So you have one shot and you're running up to the midcourt. But with Ryler, I think he he likes to stay back a little bit more and kind of feel that guy out and make him volley. If I had, if it was up to me, I'd have Ryler in immediately on that returning point. So there's no space back there. Yeah, with um, he's afraid he's going to get caught in the kitchen. I guess that's against the rules in pickleball. <laughs> yeah. I know. So. I need to. I need, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, need, so, I don't really know the rules of pickleball. I just see it. You can't, you can't step in the kitchen. Yeah, 
the front, it, the front you part. Can't but I think get too close to the court. Uh, to that, I mean, yeah. yeah, but yet again, you got to let people have their creativity too. Sure. You can't force them to come come in on the returns yeah. all the time. That might be it. Might be too tough. You know how that's a tough, absolutely um, a tough proposition. Very no, tough I, proposition. I know we make the mistake of uh, having kids always practice serving volleying. You know, we should have our kids practice against one up, one back, mm. because that's what they're playing against. Right. Um, yeah. You know, a gal that came out to your place, Liberty Svecki, and who Brandon knows her, uh, she won many gold balls playing doubles. And we always, we always say, and she had a tough time with this. Um, the toughest thing about being a servant volley player is finding a partner who serves in volleys. Yeah. I mean, it's coming back to DeHart, when he was, uh, his last year in high school, I took him to see Braden. And, you know, he had regressed palm up. And then over time, you know, he went to Illinois and, you know, I was, you know, talking to Craig and his mom, Debbie, like, you know, don't let him play for the first semester. And then right away, the rules were, Tylee was uh, at the U.S. Open and Riley went out to uh, Napa Valley. He played right away and got the, he won the MVP award. But that was just something that, uh, yeah, the serve, uh, over time, that's where I think his career was shortened that he had that problem with his, he was never, never really corrected, um, with, uh, yeah, you know, Bruce Burke, for example, I mean, he's, uh, um, you know, successful coach. He, he was with Tylee when they won at, uh, Illinois. Then they just recently won at Texas. Um, with, uh, you know, you have to just say, okay, let me, let me take a second glance and see if how their, how their players are playing. Um, but again, I feel sorry for the college coaches where, you know, a kid's 18 years old and it's just, a lot of times it's just based on their grips that, uh, you know, yeah. they, they just, yeah. they're just so one dimensional, um, you, you know, and having a kid have reconstructive technical forehand and backhand surgery that's at age 18. That's a problem because now they're away from home. They're on a college campus. The academics are tougher. And, but no, it really needs to happen from the get go. And um, I really think the governing bodies of tennis, like I said, in this country, the USTA, wouldn't it be great if the little kids were playing and they had to serve and volley? You know, they're playing doubles. Yeah. They had to go forward. Another thing would be, um, when kids serve, instead of little kids, I would made, made two videos today for two eight-year-olds, and they both have palm up. It's logical, intelligent. They put the rack in the pizza position. They pull yeah. down. They pull down because they swing straight towards their target. And mm-hmm. I, mean, I think people making decisions on how little kid tennis is taught, you should be able to just serve from the baseline and let and just serve anywhere in the court. You know, so yeah, it could be a de- yeah. you know you could just call it, this is you know developmental rules, mm-hmm. and then you can serve. We we do it where people have to shadow swing and serve twice, and then they can serve because uh, right. kids kids are allowed to play lousy lousy tennis. I tell parents, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel um, is not a light; it's a train coming right at you because your kid has such poor mechanics that they they're going to leave tennis. They're going to find something else to do because they just don't know that they're not working on the right skills. Um, you know, the, the thing with, uh, volleys as well is like little kids to really young kids to hit a one hand backhand volley, you know, they're not going to be strong enough. So they're just going to avoid the net. I mean, Pete Sampras hit a two handed backhand volley. We show that film yeah. all the time, but yeah, yeah. The, 
Talk a little bit about the return. What do you think about the return? Are, are people uh, just looking for a forehand return? I mean, Stevie Johnson, uh, I know he's playing the other day, World Team Tennis, and I mean, obviously he's a great player, most decorated college player of all time. I think that's one of the reasons for that, not to take anything away from him, but people like the Mac, John McEnroe and Connors, you know, they just played one year. And, you know, he, he just, great team guy, won so much, but... Um, do you see people playing doubles on your one-up, one one-back circuit where they're just hitting forehand returns? Uh, no. I, th- I think that uh, the serves are getting too good where they, they're finding the opponent's backhand. So, you know, they're, they're having to have to hit a good, sharp backhand return as well. And, uh, and, you know, if you and I are playing, we'll find each other's backhand. So I think I'm seeing a lot of backhand returns as well, especially in one-on-one doubles because, you can pinpoint that right away. In, in our, um, you know, group, you know, the lane we're in is teaching kids in their formative years. And it's amazing how they can't look straight ahead. They're always shifting their head, looking at their partner. They follow where the ball goes. And if you look straight ahead and you just look at your opponent's rackets, you know, if your partner hit a high ball or a low ball, we see people all the time running around their backhand volley. And then at a high yeah. level, you know, they're just, if you someone goes right at you, you got to play a backhand volley. But little kids, just for our listeners, you just don't run around a backhand volley. But then on the returning yeah. side, I see kids doing that again in our lane, working with players in their formative years. You know, fourteen, fifteen year olds or even younger, they're doing anything to hit a forehand return, and then so they're making a lateral east-west play. So then, if they're playing against someone who knows how to play, they're going to be able to come to the net faster. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of progressions to, uh, to that from holding the racket to, uh, hitting it properly to knowing how to adjust the grips as you're coming forward. Cause you can't keep that semi Western or Western grip, as you know, when you're coming forward at some point, you got to know how to master that Eastern grip. And that was, that was a big thing that, uh, Vandermeer made so famous with the USPTR was understand how to switch the grips Eastern to Eastern, Eastern backhand. And I know the USPTA mainly said, hey, everybody has to keep the same grip, a continental, and that's it. Mm. So, I mean, people, I think, I think what's happened is, you know, people only get so good with just volleying with one grip and say, yeah, this is difficult. Uh, I don't think I can volley so well. Let me just go back and do what I do well. Mm. So, you know, we haven't studied the grips enough. Is there a continental? When do we use an Eastern grip? When do we use, what do we, how do we adjust the grips for the half volleys? These are questions that are not asked enough. We don't see articles about it. We're not we're not glorifying the mid court volley, the quick volley. You'll see it a little bit, but there's. I think maybe it's cyclical. Maybe we'll start to see more uh, instruction about the volleys. Raven Clausen. We interviewed Raven. He's the same age, uh, give or take a year. I think he's a year older than you, actually, um, Brandon. They, but they train together and. Uh, Brandon and I were having dinner one time with Raven, and I said, Raven, he, you know, at that time, he was just climbing. You know, he got a late start, three knee operations. Eric Buderak really helped him out by letting him play the Australian doubles, and they won it. Or excuse me, it was like, a, it was, it was like a win for, for Raven. Uh, it really, you know, didn't hit the big time until the latter stages of, uh, well, he's still playing against it. it was like his career is past tense, but... So we were having dinner, and I go, Raven, we, you got to. He's worried about the ATP pension. Now he's done well. Where he's going to get the ATP ATP pension? But I said these are the numbers you should still be interested in. Is 
If someone volleys with a true continental grip, the strings aren't even facing the court you're standing on. Now, in, in our right. world, if, so much of the braid and math, if you take a racket and you spin it eight times, it goes in a full circle, 360 degrees. So you take 360 and you divide it by eight, the racket face is 45 degrees. Now, a lot of people are told, keep your elbow against your body. And, you know, the angle of the racket face is up, the angle of the racket path is down. And, um, you know, then you think of the math of someone hit, hitting as many RPMs as a Jack Sock. Um, one of the reasons that Sock is so good, he's such a gamer, huge, huge serve, is he's ripping that forehand. I mean, he's ripping everything. Um, I've never coached Tennis Sanger for a minute, but I traveled with him a little bit because I was coaching Austin Krychek and. And uh, I just told Sanger, I said, you played so well against Sock because he was tanking. He goes, doesn't matter if he's tanking. This is what Sanger said. Is Sock, and Sock wasn't a happy camper if he wasn't playing on the ATP event. So it's a, it's a challenger. He wasn't a happy camper. So anyway, Sanger said, he plays the same, whether he's tanking or not. So he's just teeing off on everything. Mm. And, you know, that's where you got to do the math that um, when people are hitting a deep volley, not a touch volley, not a soft angled volley, but when a deep volley, it's just a fact that the racket face is open less than 10 degrees. You know, it's like Rosewell's famous underspin backhand, Gonzalez said, you know, people call it a slice backhand. He goes, what slice backhand? And Braden did the film where the, the, his racket face never tilted more than seven degrees. Mm. So, you know, people aren't really floating the ball, but um, the, um, yeah, but again, I, even at the high level, I think that, um, a lot of times they're there because they're superior athletes or they're, you know, warriors or just great competitors. But there's uh, a lot of players that have holes in their game when it comes down to the, the volley. How about the serve? How about yeah. the, the toss being over the head and people hitting too much kick and not, not having the toss in a position where you can well, get a combination of speed and spin? I know. You're not seeing the serve become as efficient as it should be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, I am seeing some, some good abbreviated serves now where, you know, Roddick of course made that pretty popular back when he worked his way to number one. I'm seeing how some people are, are very effective, especially the women on the tour with that. But the second serve, I'm seeing a lot of players missing the second serve where they're not hitting a foolproof top spin second serve 10 out of 10 times to the opponent's backhand. Now, way back uh, in the day, you, you had a... You had a very popular, sir. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You had a very popular video. It was, it was, yes. I remember having a copy of that. Tell us about that. It was just for the serve. Yes. It was uh, basically, it wasn't the full backswing. It was keeping the palm down, but it was a short swing, like how the world class players are hitting their overhead. So it was basically learning how to pop that ball over the fence. If you're sitting near the, near the net, right? Mm. You would be able to hit the ball over the fence on one bounce by just using your hand, which is actually holding onto the racket. So as I tossed the ball up, the racket went right up into the motion. And it was, I thought it was a lot more efficient than anything I ever saw. I said, Hmm. So I was starting to coach Jay Berger to do that. And he caught onto it pretty quickly, but then Jay didn't have the same motion that I wanted him to have, but he showed you that you didn't need a whole lot of motion. Did you to pop that serve? Oh, you got what's he number nine in the world? He used that old uh, Prince racket forever. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I decided to do a video on it, and you know, it. it I, I believe Roddick's coach came out, studied it a little bit, and taught it to him. 
And uh, it got out there. It was really nice to see how a lot of the uh, teaching pros uh, started to take a liking to it. Actually, Stan Bostit coached uh, Roddick. And, uh, yeah, he was frustrated with the serve, and he put the racket in the abbreviated position. We, we do a drill that we learned from Oscar Wagner. Uh, we just call it Elvis Presley snap down. And you, you, yeah. you can't do the drill unless you toss the ball way out in front. We just find so many kids because when they're younger, they serve with a forehand grip. They're not taught to go to a continental grip. But what they do, they still have palm up, but they toss the ball so far over their head. So then now the racket's in a position where the edge starts to go up. And, you know, they got to go see the chiropractor. I mean, they're hitting spin, but, I mean, it's just going nowhere. It's going so slow. Yeah. I know. I, well, that's why I called it the best serve, stood for biomechanically efficient serving technique, right? Yeah, you just throw the ball up, let the racket go up, and boom, whack it, rather than let it go back, down, and around. And, you know, that got to be problematical. Yeah, yeah, it can be. Well, Creasy was uh, known for Hell Week, where he would, his goal was his players, if, for the first week, if they, could, if they were to quit, you know, I think a lot of coaches say, well, if they can't hang in here for this week, they won't be there. They won't be tough enough when we get down to the nitty gritty. <laughs> so he's so he was really known for uh, getting his guys to break you know five minute miles or close to it. With uh, tell us about Mark Dixon. You worked with him too. Was he there when you were there? Or did you no, he was there before me. Uh, I had Berger with uh, uh, Matichewski, uh, Kinnear. Um, you know those guys. Uh, I think Matichewski and Berger were the best. You know, Matt, I don't know if you remember the name Richard Matichewski. Oh but yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was, was he was in Tampa. He's forty nine in the juniors and forty nine in the pros. He. Uh, he bought, oh, yeah. he bought Palmer's Academy years ago. Great guy. Yes, he was, we, we used to let him use yep. courts at our, our tennis school. Yes, he was a great player at Clemson. He worked his way up to number one, and so did so did uh, Jay Berger. He worked as, he started at number four, and you know he won the U.S. Open after his first year uh, at Clemson. He won the U.S. Open Juniors. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He got to the round of 16 in the main draw. Forgive me. And he decided to come back and play one more year of college tennis. We thought he was going to turn pro. Hmm. Can you imagine that? Wow. And and Chuck and Chuck made him have to play everybody in challenge matches to get the number one spot right after he <laughs> arrived on campus. I said, Jay, take that leather jacket off. We're getting to work here, you know? That's classic. It's amazing the connections, the triangle of tennis. Um, Ken Kinnear, tell us about him. He's now in charge of men's tennis. Um, he did really well as a doubles player too, right? You got it. He was our best one-on-one doubles player. I mean, he would bring the heat. He'd come in for that first volley. He he ended up beating a lot of top guys in singles because he would run these creasy momentum plays when they were down. He would give them the, the Ken Kinnear serve and volley. When he was up, he would stay back and outwork them. So he really understood how to use his serve and volley when he was down, and it was uh, those cr- Coach Creasy momentum guidelines that he put in his book that worked like a gem yeah, I, and uh, he be, he knew how to do it. I talked to Chuck about being on the being on our podcast. He said he'd love to do it. There's a guy who he really bleeds for American tennis. Um, oh know, yeah. We're making lots and lots of mistakes. Um, you know, I think a lot of times the people that are making decisions, they haven't been in the trenches. You know, they haven't been out there, you know, working with, with young players. Um, but Mo Dixon, uh, I know Brad Gilbert one time said he had the best second serve in tennis, but he's a Tampa guy who, um, you know, he worked his way up the Jesuit lineup and he worked his way up at Clemson. 
And oh yeah, he was one of the greatest. Yeah, with uh, his dad used to just come out and watch us practice. He hit the backboard and sit. He just loved it. Just sit and watch his coach juniors. Oh, I heard he was one of the greatest. He was really fabulous. Uh, so I'm I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to work with him. But you know, we I went to South Carolina. We did a tournament in honor of Coach Creasy, a one on one doubles tournament a few months ago. And we played regular scoring in honor of Coach Creasy. All right. Tell and us. his team, get this, his, his number one his number one player won the tournament, the one-on-one doubles. He upset the whole field, winning $1,700. Ed, tell us, that's fantastic. Tell us the story. Tell us, the listeners, how can they get in touch with you? How they can they, um, you know, how could they run their own one-on-one tournament? Um, might talk about that a little sure. bit. Sure. Uh, anybody that's interested in, in running some one-on-one doubles tournaments, just contact us. They can use us as a resource. We're basically licensing out the tournaments and uh, we can help them uh, with the logo, advertising it with their membership, doing banners, uh, doing some announcements on the website, results, photos, the whole bit. And, um, you know, we can help them with a whole bunch of things to get started. But, uh, yeah, they can just call me at, at my 813 number here, 478-3384. The website's com. you got to spell it out, O-N-E-O-N-O-N-E-D-O-U-B-L-E-S.com. You'll see some announcements of events and some of the history of the game, the videos, and I'd like to partner with the right people who have the passion to to grow this and showcase this serving volley game. I think it's a great game, one-on-one doubles. Oh, no, you need to be commended for your efforts. Um, how about club pros? Um, does anyone run a one-on-one league? Uh, a league? No, not a league. Uh, I think the, the, the big thing is just to get them to run some tournaments. And they, it, there's been some pros that have run some tournaments on their own over the years. There's a fellow who ran a great uh, pro tournament in San Francisco a couple of years ago, and he had the, the best 35, 40, and 45s. Uh, in the state of California, play it. There's been a bunch of different coaches run it on their own. Uh, not a lot of them, mind you, but I w- I'd say maybe about 15 to 20 coaches out there have run some of their own tournaments. But I think with the pandemic, you know, hopefully easing up a little bit, we'll see more and more open up uh, at clubs and universities with this game. Let me ask you a question, uh, Brandon. You may have a couple more. We'll wind it down here, but. Uh... Who comes to your mind quickly? These rapid fire questions, the hardest worker that you are ever working with. I mean, you're at, or you observe it, you're at Hopman's and some of these other places, the tennis teams, who comes to your mind? The hardest worker. Oh, the hardest working player. Um, gee, it might've been, Ken, it might've been Ken Kinnear. Wow. About- it might've been Ken Kinnear. And then there was also uh, the uh, Dustin Mock. And Ryan Mock, I never knew that these guys would become all Americans in doubles, but uh, at SMU. But they were hard working at my camp back in the nineties. And how about mentally tough? Who comes to your mind? Oh, uh, Jay Berger. He was like an Israeli fighter pilot. You know, I was <laughs> his. Co- you know, when he'd be down uh, a set and a break, we knew. You know that uh, once he put the, his mind to it, it was over. Uh, now that we're just got to tell you a Jay Berger story. I told Jay this when he was coaching the University of Miami. He was coaching Raleigh Hart. So, if I get it right here, Art Seguzo, Robbie Seguzo, Karen Seguzo. So, Karen, she's, you know, played really well and 
early years, she was really switched on to tennis and she won the orange ball. She's younger than Robbie. You know, Robbie, you know, number one in the world for five years, but he was 21 in, in singles. So in their early days, mm-hmm. growing up in the Fort Lauderdale area. So Karen Seguzo beats Jay, takes, beats him a set, beats him a set. Mm-hmm. And this is when they're like, you know, 10, 11 years old. So now 15 years have gone by. And Robbie is playing Jay Berger at the U.S. Open. This is a great tennis parent story. So after the match, Papa Seguzo, Art Seguzo, the first thing he says to Robbie goes, how can you lose to Jay Berger? Karen can beat him. (laughs) (laughs) That's my uh, Jay Berger story. I think that's one of the best tennis parent stories. That's a good story. Like, come on, you know, a few years have gone by. He's not, he's not 10 years old anymore. <laughs> yeah, we've all lost to those players. You know how that is. For sure. For hey, you know, we've had some feedback on Paul Scarpa. We've mentioned him a few times. We just talked to Manny Diaz. and um, You were in South Carolina at Clemson. You must have a Paul Scarpa story. You know, uh, I, I always respected him. He broke, I think he's still the winningest coach of all time. I think mm-hmm. Creasy, or maybe he's the second winningest. I know the coach from VCU is might be the winningest. Mm. He just left there. Uh, Paul Costin, but I think you've got Coach Creasy who might be number two or three. He's still out there coaching at Citadel, doing a phenomenal job. Uh, but yeah, Scarpa was you know Scarpa was pretty amazing in his own right. Mm-hmm. I know he's a good player. Um, Brandon, what do you got? For oh us? yeah, he. Well, uh, one more question, just to kind of circle back. I think what's uh, what's really on the, the the minds of the tennis uh, tennis playing population, tennis playing conscious right now is is uh, the the King Richard movie, and um, I know you you spent some time with Rick Macy, but what did you think of the portrayal of Rick Macy in that movie? It was great. It was right on the money. <laughs> I mean, I think Rick admits it. Rick admits it. I mean, yeah. Rick had a, a kind of a magical, fun way about getting the most out of his players, having them have fun and. And, um, you know, I think there was more about King Richard and the way he coached the kids. But I think Rick, uh, I think Rick really had his due and people see that Rick was instrumental in coaching two of the greatest players of all time. And, um, I, Rick's a living legend. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, people are jealous of him and, 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 and rightfully so. And, you know, I think that's, we gotta, we gotta raise Rick up and, and, and really cherish what he's done, you know? Well, I think one thing about Rick is uh, just getting players to believe themselves. You know, these, you know, you, we always say we're, we're first base coaches and, uh, but, but he really brings people home. I mean, he's, uh, he gets people confident. Um, magic, he does. Magic, he gets them confident. You know, the, this book, uh, I read the book, Magic Macy, and I think it is magical that, uh, you know, he's just, way, way he talks to kids and fires them up. I've got one last question. Uh, when we introduced you, said I'm pretty sure that no one knows more college coaches than you do. Of anybody on the planet, you know everybody. I get a little tired of kids going. I want to play D1, D1, D1. And I know D3, for example. I mean, there's D3 teams. It can be D1 teams, and um, it'd be great if you could give a plug to uh, you know the the different colleges. And there's, there's I guess, five thousand colleges. There's great programs all over the country, and I think it's um, you know, kids, uh, they say they go to a D3 program and they get up every day and whether they're trying to win a conference championship or a national championship, um, why don't you make a few comments on it? It's not just the, 
what's it called? The power five conferences. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, I think division three is where it's at for a lot of American tennis. I think you've got tremendous players there. You know, division one, of course, is so international. Now you get some of the best players in the world, but I think you're seeing division three be such a phenomenal uh, springboard for successful tennis. You can go to the pros and play, you know, college. Uh, I mean, go play professional doubles. We've seen it happen. So you got division two, of course, which is, I think, some great tennis too. Mm. So you don't want to pick the college based on the division. Uh, and you don't learn that unless you're with the right coach who understands this, you know, mm-hmm. you, you pick the college based on the college, right? Not, not on the division that it's in. Sure. And what about NAIA? I mean, you've been around so much college tennis. What are your thoughts oh. on NAIA? Yes, I kind of uh, equate it to like a Division Two. It's it, it's very international. I think uh, it may, sometimes it's not as the rules aren't as stringent as as NCAA in many ways. But I still think it's a great four year opportunity, and you got some great great players in in the NAIA. I respect it very much. And, you know, I think it's it's sad with there's less junior college teams now. There used to be 32 men's teams in Florida, and now I believe there's two. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, because that was... Oh, the, lucky uh, to have... Go ahead. Yeah, we're lucky to have that. I know Coach Bobby Cashman's doing a great job at Eastern Florida. The old UCF coach, Bobby Cashman's coaching that team, and mm. that's yeah. probably the best junior college job in the country right there. No, we just worked with a young Canadian boy who's... Uh, going to join him in January. Um, no, I don't, I think it's uh, never, never give up. And, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, you play tennis for a lifetime and there's these age group tournaments and there's, you know, club tournaments and you play tennis overseas. And um, now again, I just think for our listeners is that, um, you know, some of the kids that are playing D1, they just had an earlier start. And, you know, some kid who starts playing tennis when 13, 14 years old, um, I've seen it many times. I've been doing this for almost 50 years where, um, you know, mm-hmm. somebody, somebody who started late and they didn't play the highest level of college tennis, they end up, uh, you know, the, in the national age groups and they, uh, they just keep working on their game. I think that's the beauty of it. Oh yeah, but let, exactly. Let's do this, Ed. Why don't you uh, sign off by giving us a one-on-one doubles commercial? <laughs> We, we need it. We All need right. It. Well, yeah, well, I'll give it to you now. I, I'd like to tell them on half a court, your dreams come true. That would be on the cross court now. <laughs> when those low and quick volleys become part of you. I, I tell them, feel the power, feel the heat. To serve in volleys, the ultimate treat. <laughs> That's good. So you, do you still have your jazz uh, bands come out during the tournament? I do, yeah. It's the rock and blues. It's a nice mix of rock and blues. And it, we play the first couple hours and then, we let the semis and finals kind of play to a little bit of music, but let them kind of take the take the show from there, you know? Very and, cool. And you've got a song, the Tennis Blues, right? Yeah, the one-on-one doubles, rock and blues. I got 14 songs out there. Uh, I did my own CD called Tennis Blues and Other News. You can find it on Amazon. But uh, I, I did mix, uh, I guess I'm a musician myself, and I did write all my own all my own lyrics and music, you know? Cool, cool. That's fantastic. Our listeners will have to do that. So we'll have to have you on again, and we'll start having you sing a song. We'll let you uh, get those lyrics in front of you. Do you have them all by memory? Yeah. 
I got a lot of them by memory, but the next time I catch you at one of my events, I'll sing one for you. <laughs> Actually, we need to get together and uh, go to a Tampa Bay Lightning game. With uh, on me, it'll be my my pleasure. I'll treat you guys. Yeah, my son Mikhail, he's based in Tampa, and uh, you got to go for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Two two Stanley Cups back to back, right? You know it, and I always tell my coaches that if they win the uh, team tournament, they get uh, all expenses paid to a Bucks game uh, minus airfare. <laughs> and what instrument do you play? Uh, I just sing. Uh, just improvisational uh, rock and blues singer. All right. Eddie Kraus, this has been fun. Anything else, Brandon? No, no. Thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure to, to, to listen to your thoughts on, on college tennis and one-on-one doubles and, and the whole thing, really. So Ameri- State of American Tennis and even Rick Macy's mustache in, in the King Richard movie. <laughs> No, I think that, yeah. That, go ahead. Yeah, I tell you that King Richard was fabulous too. I mean, those two were—they were a great team. Those two. With uh, yeah, and I think one-on-one doubles, it would be awesome. I think the USTA, governing body tennis here in America, they should put a line down the middle. They've got the ten and under lines, line down the middle, and and people should be knowing. Okay, you know, deuce court to deuce court, we do it all day long. You know. Then you play ad court to ad court. And um, I remember running a, um, on an interim basis at Tyler Junior College. They had a group of Swedes. And I said, okay, we'll have a one-on-one tournament, deuce court only. And these Swedish, guys, Swedish kids wouldn't go to the net. And I go, hey, I know you guys have never been to war, but there's going to be a war if you don't go to the net. <laughs> you just got to serve them. Yeah. Peter Burwash, he used to get behind people, and he'd put, their, they'd put his racket like he was going to spear them in the back. And he would just charge them yeah. to the net. Um, now, with uh, I like the idea of one bounce double. So, but no, oh, thank, yeah. you, thank you, thank you, yeah. and I, I hope I hope a huge sponsor hears this. Uh, you know, we just a little small corner of the tennis world. I mean, we have a, a small audience, and you know, maybe someone will uh, get a sponsor to call you up, and we need to have some big bucks be for one on one doubles. Well, uh, that would be fantastic, and uh, maybe it's coming, and uh, maybe our time is is coming. So thanks to you and your support and your belief. It's moving the game forward, and thanks for your support of one-on-one doubles, guys. It's 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 been great in college tennis, and all you're doing with your podcast, you're growing the game. Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Ed Kraft. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Right. Yeah, it was great. Let's do it Thank again. You, yeah, we'll Talk do it again. Soon. You got it. Thanks again, guys. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right, number 70, Eddie Kraft. I like that right, slogan. Flanagan. I like that slogan. What slogan is that? Uh, the one-on-one double slogan. Pretty good. Yeah. No, I, we, we have to get him on again and have him. Uh, I don't Eddie remember playing an instrument, but yeah, his voice is an instrument. There you go. <laughs> um, but no, a fun personality, amazing background, amazing cause. I mean, you know, we can't let doubles die. And it's, it's, it's tragic. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we could have talked to him about entry fees. Uh, I've been walking around like just disgusted and disturbed that there's this tournament down here. A lot of kids here visiting and, you know, it's $221 mm. to play the tournament. And, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but are they playing no ad? Are they playing 10 point tiebreakers? Right. Is the doubles, are they even having doubles? And, I mean, I even said to a few people, the parents should rebel. Wouldn't that be amazing if the parents were to rebel, junior tennis go, no juniors play tournaments. 
And, you know, all this about rankings and ratings is, uh, no, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's a negative, you know, you know, a family of three, mm. family of two, it's just too expensive. Um, and you know, bring back the good old days where you could hang around a court and, you know, somebody would ask you to be a fourth and sure. it'd be a senior top player telling you, Hey, you got to come to the net kid. Mm-hmm. But, um, I can remember, uh, playing doubles with Wayne Saban and he was a top 10 player in the world. And I let a ball bounce. He could swear like a sailor. I let the ball bounce and hit it for a middle, a winner up the middle. And I mean, this guy, we just met each other, you know, he's in his sixties and we became great friends. He used to hang out with us. I was living in a van as a tennis bomb. You knock on the door. Hey, you guys are beating the rent. And, uh, but he just, lit into me because I let the ball bounce. Mm-hmm. I let the ball bounce. But listeners, anyway, number 70 is in the books. Thanks for listening. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks, Ed Crass. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Good night.